amazing thing for a speaker to get more than 24 hours. Um, so, uh, but this, this thought kept running through my mind um, uh, about America. And hear me, I'm a patriotic, patriotic guy. My grandfather served in World War II. I'll get to that in a second. Um, uh, and I believe in everything that the United States of America stands for. Um, that all being said, we've grossly missed some things in the last hundred years or so, like really bad, uh, very bad. Um, and it's kind of led to where we are right now. Um, so I, I have entitled the message, The American Dream, and this is the subtitle just to kind of give you an idea, is how chasing the pot at the end of the rainbow really ends. Um, I remember being a kid and, and my mom telling me about the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I'm like, man, I'm going to find me a rainbow. I want a pot of gold. You know, like, I'm going to run. I'm going to chase. And obviously, you know, I never caught the end of the rainbow. And, and even if I did catch the end of the rainbow, there's no pot there. Um, so, uh, but I can remember uh, that, that feeling of wanting to, um, even as a young man, like, strive for the American dream. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? When we talk about the American dream, there's this idea that pops into my mind. And it's popped in my mind for you know, 20 years, you know, the, the, the three-bedroom house, two-bath, white picket fence, maybe a pool out back with a little dog, poodle running around or something. We have these images of what the American dream is, don't we? So me and Charlie are the only one who has an idea of what the American dream looks like. We all have an idea, and it may be different for you than it is for me. Something that I desperately wanted as a young man was just to have a, a wife and a family and be a good dad and be a good husband. That's all I wanted. That's part of the American dream. And it's not bad. It's not a bad thing. The problem is, is we've, we've, we've kind of turned the corner here in the last 30 or 40 years, and it's, come, it's become something just not godly. And, and we have this idea, and the, the earliest settlers, settlers had a different idea of what the American dream looked like. And it was something that they believed that God had placed in their heart, a dream that they could see realized when they came to this country. And over time, it's evolved and developed into something else. We now live in a country where the freedoms that we have, the freedoms that we've come to be known by, have led us down a path that says anything goes. And if it leads to you being happy, then you should go for it. That's what America is. It's the land of opportunity. If you work hard enough, you can achieve whatever you want. At the start, we sought the Lord and we made our plans according to what we heard. We would pray. The early American church would pray, and then they would hear from God, and then they would go do that. We've kind of just like done what we wanted to, and then asked God, well, is that okay with you? Is that okay? Is this okay with you? Uh, and whenever I think about the idea or the ideals of the American dream, my grandfather really comes to mind. Um, I told you he, he's... What? I told you he served in World War II, um, a couple of years ago, he, he gave me a, a couple of things. I had just gotten licensed and ordained, and, and, um, and he gave me this Bible. And if you can see it, it's super old-looking. And I had no idea how old it actually was until I opened it. Um, this was my great-great-grandfather's, and he used it to preach in the Civil War. Uh, in the middle of this Bible, there's the names of people that this Bible has been handed down to over the years. And the names of great ancestors who, who at one time were devout Christ followers. And when he gave me that, he gave me something else. He gave me um, his dog tag from when he served in World War II. I wear it quite often around my neck. I got it on today. Um, it's, it's one of two. My mom has the other. And I do that for a reason. My grandfather, um, he was born in 1928. And I, I said, okay, if I give you a little bit of history, just a little bit of history. Um, he was born in 1928 in Kentucky to coal mining parents. My grandparents, my great-grandparents, rather, were both coal, well, my grandfather was a coal miner in Kentucky, and my grandmother was a, a state, a, a house, housewife. And uh, I heard stories growing up of how my grandfather and my great-grandfather, um, when my, right before my grandfather enlisted, him and my great-grandfather would be able to push a full coal cart down the tracks by themselves. Uh, my grandfather, at 15 years old, had a 52-inch chest and a 32-inch waist, could bench press 555 pounds. He was a, a mammoth of a man. He was a hard-working, coal-mining guy. So he is the guy who uh, I look to as far as, you know, what it means to be a hard worker, what it means to work for what you want. And he did. Um, 
he, I can remember him telling us stories, and I jokingly tell my kids this, and whenever they start complaining, I can remember my grandfather telling me stories about how he'd walk uh, through the snow seven miles each way to school, across the barbed wire fence. You know, we have all these stories, and I'm sure some of you guys have heard those stories from your family. And I didn't believe them. I'm like, Granddad, you're just making that up to make it sound like good. You're just making that stuff up, you know. There's no barbed wire fence. Come on, man. You know, it's not seven miles. So little did I know, my mom went to Kentucky for the very first time uh, about 10 years ago and followed the, 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 the um, road from where my grandfather used to live to the, house, or to the school he used to go to. And it was 7.1 miles. The entire way, there was a barbed wire fence right across that road. So... Uh, uh, I can remember stories like that. And at the age of 16, uh, my great-grandfather signed off for my grandfather to enlist in, in the Marines. And he was a Marine. Any Marines in the house? No, really? Wow. Okay. Army? Army? Wow. Okay. So my grandfather's a Marine, and I've heard that the toughest. I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, my grandfather's a tough hombre. Um, but after being wounded in action, uh, he, he left honorably the uh, military and was a successful attorney and an entrepreneur and a businessman. And he's a very generous man. Like my grandfather's given more money away than he's kept for himself. Uh, and, and, and he was really good at what he did and he made other people successful at what they did. And why am I telling you all this? That's the question. Because my grandfather lived the American dream. And it didn't turn out the way that God really wanted it to, I don't believe. Ultimately, I guess it did, because I'm still standing here in a church, a pastor. But the point is this. While my grandfather was chasing, and I love and honor and respect my grandfather tremendously. He's like one of my heroes. But while my grandfather was working so hard and pushing towards this American ideal, this American dream, he forgot to disciple his family. He forgot to really invest in the people that were closest to him. The man was married and divorced four times. Had a, a, a bad alcohol addiction. And it ruined just about every relationship that he ever had. And now, he will die. An 86-year-old man, more than likely. Talked to my uncle last week. Uh, congestive heart failure. Uh, dementia. Doesn't really know who I am. And I, I, was, I was affectionately known as Benny Boy, his preacher, his preacher grandson. So this man, 86, year old, 86 years old, more than likely will die. And he will die alone. He will die, and no one will know his story. And no one will know the legacy that he left. Because it's just stuff. It's going to rust away. The buildings that he built, the money he made, it's, it will all go away. There's these giant flaws with the American dream. One glaring problem I really do believe, and it's this. We've settled for less than we should have. We've settled for something that we were never meant to settle for. My, my responsibility, let me just kind of back up and pause for a second. I don't get to speak very often, so my responsibility when I do speak is this. Um, I like to throw the challenge out there big time. I, I feel like part of my, my responsibility as a pastor and, and as, a, um, as a minister and specifically the, the anointing that I feel like I walk in is to challenge you to shake off the status quo, to do something more than what you're doing now. That is part of my responsibility. So you have a choice. <laughs> you can like it, and you can listen for a few moments or not and walk out and live life the way you've been living it. And we're all guilty, me included. I sit... Sunday after Sunday, occasionally, and listen to our pastor speak and challenge and encourage and poke and prod and, and, and tell us to go for it, and I walk out and I don't do it. So my, my, my urgent prayer for you is don't do that today. Okay? I really believe this is the most important thing you're going to hear, honestly, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Psalm 2.8, if you've got your Bibles, open to Psalm 2.8. <clears throat> This is, for me, kind of the um, launching point of, I started thinking about this, and it's in part probably because we just got back from Miami on this mission trip, and um, I had prepared this message uh, Wednesday, and we left on Thursday afternoon to go to this conference in, in um, Nashville, and the entire conference, three days, I, I'm looking at my wife, and I'm like, man, that's that's really kind of what I'm speaking on on Sunday. Like, that's, 
even the scripture I use, like, wow, oh my gosh, you know, and then next day, like, I, that scripture I use too, and, and this one too. So I have no doubts that, that God has got not just my number, but he's got your number as well. So Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth as your possession. The American dream has become nothing more than a collection of things. I love things. Like, I make the biggest deal out of my birthday. It should be a national holiday. <laughs> so should yours. <laughs> just, I just, I like to celebrate. I like stuff. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, we've become so focused on getting stuff, holding on to our stuff, not losing our stuff, that we fail to see that the creator of heaven and earth, the one who gave us the ability to get stuff, in the first place, wants to give us the nations as our inheritance. So this whole time we've been focusing on, man, I gotta get, I gotta get that house. I gotta get that white picket fence. I gotta get that new car. I did something the most painful thing I've ever done when it comes to possessions. Um, about four years ago, five years ago, I guess, four and a half years ago, maybe. Um, I, I had to sell a vehicle that I just absolutely loved. Like I loved this thing. It was an idol in my life. I'm going to go ahead and confess. I just, I, I, it was a source of enjoyment for my family. We would take the, the top off the Jeep and we would just ride around enjoying God's creation. Like, that, was my, that was my stupid prayer. Father, God, you know, I, just, I want to enjoy your creation. Can I have a Jeep? I need a Jeep. I don't need just a two-door Jeep. I need a four-door Jeep because I got three kids, two kids at a time. I had the, it, I, it was painful. But we, we, we just collect all this stuff. And the whole time, the creator of heaven and earth is saying, look, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. I will give you the uttermost parts as your possession. You want possessions? Here, here's possessions. Here's the earth and the fullness of it all. You can go and minister and, and have a, a part in seeing nations come to me and bring me glory. Yet we've settled for collecting things. The American dream has become a sham and it's our fault still with me like oh my gosh pastor ben's lost his mind uh we say things are uh that are we say things and are identified with things that tell us what the problem is okay now bear with me i have a really weird sense of humor uh who likes cheese i better see every hand in this place go up cheese is like god's greatest gift i know the rods are like man it makes me congested i got it um (laughs) i'm sure it's not good for you Tastes really good, though, okay? And there's not just a, there's, I, I married an Italian 14 years ago, bless God, he knew what he was doing, gave me a wife, found a good thing, found a great thing, okay? So, I, I, I get cheese all the time, there's nothing like around Christmas time, you get the dried Italian sausage and the, uh, and the super sharp piccani provolone, I know, it's like, Pastor Ben, it's almost lunchtime, well, stay with me. If you go to a restaurant, though, uh, they're going to, you really just want a hamburger, right? Ham- hamburgers? I love hamburgers, okay? So I, when I go to the restaurant and I get a hamburger, the next question they ask is, do you want cheese on that? I'm like, that's a st- stupid question. <laughs> stupid. You're not stupid. That's a stupid question. Yes, I want cheese. Well, what kind of cheese do you want? What kind of cheese do I want? Yeah, I want American. American cheese. Do you understand that American cheese can't even be legally called cheese? Because it's so processed and so fake and so phony and so full of so much garbage. can't even be called cheese. You guys seeing the correlation? American cheese and America? We're this watered-down, processed version of the great land that the forefathers saw. That's what we've become. We have become a watered-down, processed version of the great catalyst for revival that our forefathers saw. We have settled. As a 30-something, I believe we need to change. We have to. There's no other option. We have to change our thinking first and foremost. And then after we change our thinking, we have to change the things that we're doing. I don't think that the solution, I, I'm sorry, I think that the solution is the same as it's always been. 
the solution is no different than it was 100 years ago. But the way that we've been going about it for the last 50 or 60 years has not worked. As a matter of fact, it has backfired. First, let me say this. I already said that. I like stuff. Um, so it's not, uh, it's not me talking to you. Okay? It's not me talking to you. It's me talking with you. I'm talking with you. I need to change. I, and I'm aware of that. More acutely uh, right now in this moment than I could say I was on, on Thursday morning. We need to change. So the question is, how do we, how do, we do that? How do, how do we change? What does it look like? What does the process for us to change look like? It looks like this. If you're taking notes, Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves, pray, seek, crave, and require of necessity my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven forgive their sin, and heal their land. Amen. I'm going to read that scripture again. If my people, who are called by my name, we are his people, we have been called by his name. If you're sitting in this church, or under the sound of my voice, and you're not his people, you can become his people. But we are his people, and we've been called by his name. The problem is, is we will never humble ourselves. We don't like to do it. We just would rather wait for somebody to humiliate us. If we humble ourselves, that's the first step, and pray and seek, crave, and require of necessity. This is not an option. This is not, like, we can't do this on our own. We cannot do it on our own. We require, it is, he is a necessary part of this process. If we try to, to bypass the fact that we include him in this process, we are going to be left right where we are standing right now. Yes. So require of necessity, his face, him, not the, not the uh, idea, not a church, but him, his presence, his very person, and turn from our wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and uh, forgive their sin and heal their land. Um, we've spent the last few decades in steep moral decline, steep moral decline. We've chased the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And there's nothing wrong with that. Hear me. Like, going back to my grandfather, the guy's amazing. I mean, I sit and I listen to some of the things he's done. I mean, he took stuff overseas to, you know, medical supplies overseas to, to foreign countries to help with medical relief. It's not like he was just this bad guy. It's not like the things he did were bad. It's not like the things that we do are bad. But they are misdirected. Our focus is, is, is shifted to acquiring those things and, 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 and making the next move. You know, if we get a house, it's like the house isn't good enough. We got to get the next house. Yes. Dude, I'm guilty. I remember my wife and I, young, got a beautiful house, three bedroom, two bath, sweet house, right? We had two kids. We're like, we had one kid at the time. We had another kid. Well, three bedroom, two baths, not big enough. Just not big enough. We got all that stuff. We got to get a new house. So we get another house, four bedroom, three bath, plus an office, got the pool out back, three car garage, in a rich neighborhood, couldn't afford that house, didn't need that house, but I wanted that house, so I got that house. Listen, we have chased this pot of gold for so long that it has brought destruction and debt, so much debt that we can't do what God really wants us to do. So we've chased this pot of gold only to find out that it was cracked and it left us wanting. We've left God out of the equation and it has cost us dearly. The way forward is by prayer, right? And a personal redirection to seeking God. We have to pray hard and then listen. I'm going to tell you something and I'll probably say it again, but I, I, it just needs to be said. The answer is not getting people in a church building. Hear me. I, I want people to come to our church. But if we focus on getting people in here, we are completely missing the point. Amen. Completely. I would love for this place to be full. There's nothing that I would like more. But I want it full the right way, for the right reasons, with the right people, who are, who are not coming to hear a message, but they're, hearing, they're coming to aid in what's already going on. They're coming to, to, to facilitate 
the Great Commission. They're coming to see and hear and taste that the Lord is good and then go out and come and tell other people how good he is. Not bring them, not tell them, hey, you got to come to my church and see how good God is. No, you got to come and look at my life. See what Jesus did for me. He can do the same thing for you. You don't have to come to my church to experience that. You can see my life and see how good he's been. And he can do it for you. Ooh, Jesus. I'm... Get back to the notes, Pastor. The New Testament church members had a vibrant prayer life that they saw Jesus model. So if we're going to see original, the original ideals of the American dream come to pass, we have to pray and not just when we're at church. We have to live lives that are marked by prayer. The early church saw something else modeled by Jesus. Here's, here is, I said this to <clears throat> some parents last week as we met for uh, a, a ministry we're trying to start. Um, Jesus was a man whose, whose life and ministry was marked by prayer. The disciples saw it. So, and pastor says this all the time, so when the when the disciples came to Jesus, they said, um, teacher, teach us how to, right, pray. Amazing. That is the most amazing thing. They didn't ask him to, you know, show him how to build churches or anything like that. They said, teach us how to pray. But Jesus was a man marked by prayer, but he was, he was also a man by, marked by something else. And the uh, disciples, early church, saw this replicated in the um, disciples. After Jesus prayed, he would in turn go and do something. He was not a guy to sit idle. He prayed and then he went and he laid hands on the sick. He spoke to the multitudes. He rebuked Pharisees. Jesus was a man of action. He was not a guy who sat in some closet and prayed. He didn't go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and come out and go, wow, that was good. Holy Spirit. That wasn't what Jesus did. That wasn't even what he was about. He prayed and he did. He heard and saw what the Father was saying and doing, and he did that. Amen. Stay with me. We have, become, we have to become men and women of action. James 1, 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We're really good at hearing. We love to come and listen to, I, I, I'm going to confess, I love to listen to good preaching. Man, it gets me fired up. I love to listen to a guy who's charismatic and can just hammer home that point. I love it. We love to come and listen. We love to come and hear. But when it comes to doing, it's like, nah, that's somebody else's job. That's somebody else. Let somebody else do. I'm going to come and listen. I'm going to come and listen to and taste that sermon. And then I'm going to go home and not do. That's the, that's the pastor's job. That's the, the youth pastor's job. That's the volunteer children nursery worker's job. They're supposed to be the ones that are pouring into our children. That was a plug for the nursery workers. You guys, they need some help back there. You're not feeling led to go work with children. You got children? You ever had children? You're feeling led. You need to go ahead and see Rachel Johnson right after service say, the Lord has led me to come work in that nursery and love on them babies. And by the way, we also need help upstairs too. I'm just going to plug every ministry we got. We need help upstairs too. You don't, you don't like kids. Guess what? <clears throat> I don't either. <laughs> I got, I got three that I can, <laughs> I like all right, <laughs> some of the time, <laughs> except for Victoria, she's good all the time. The two boys, ooh, Jesus, mama's boys, daddy's girl, that's for sure. Okay, so, listen, we don't like to do, and, and let me take it a step farther. Helping in the work of the ministry of the church is great, and it's necessary. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about at all. That's not at all what this sermon is about. So if that's what you heard, delete the last two minutes and 37 seconds from your mind and hear me. When I say go and do, I mean go and do what Jesus told us to do. He didn't tell you to come work in the nursery. He didn't tell you to come work upstairs. He told you to go and do one thing. One thing and one thing only. We're going to get to that in just a second. I think that for the majority of us, me included, we look at what happens on Sundays as just part of our routine. We have come to the place where Sunday mornings we get up, we get dressed, and, and we put our socks and shoes on the same way. And if you're like me, you brush your teeth after you get out of the shower, and she can't stand it because she wants to give me a kiss good morning. I just, look, I'm going to, I'm an old dog, kind of, 
and you can't teach me a new trick. Like, I'm going to brush my teeth after I get the shower. I tried this morning to brush them before. It just didn't work. I was like, man, something feels weird, okay? This is not just, uh, this is not just a means uh, of a functionality. Like, coming to church is not just a means of functionality. It's, a, it's, a, it's out of necessity. And let me explain that in just one moment. It has to be bigger than us getting fed. It has to be bigger than us getting fed on a Sunday morning. Listen to me right now. It is not my job nor my pastor's job to feed you. This is not a buffet. You can't get your one serving of meat and come back for mashed potatoes. You can't. My family used to go to this uh, buffet called Holiday House. It was wonderfully awful. <laughs> and I, I remember going down the, the buffet and there was lamb and all this stuff. And, Man, I want more meat. I can't get more meat. I get more mashed potatoes. My brother would skip the meat altogether and just get a huge plate of mashed potatoes. This kid's weird. My kids don't even eat mashed potatoes. Let's get back to this. Um, so it's not my responsibility to feed you. It's not a buffet. It's your responsibility to feed yourself. It's your job to come to the table. It's your job to come to the table. And you know what else you have to do when you come to that table? Bring somebody. Bring somebody. I'm not talking about coming to church. I'm talking about Jesus has prepared a table for you. For you to come and dine and eat freely and drink. Instead, we come to church saying, Pastor, you got to feed me. You got to show, you got to feed me. No, I don't. You got to feed yourself. Here it is right here. Feed yourself. It ain't my responsibility. The solution is simple. Take responsibility for your relationship with Christ. We don't like to take responsibility for anything. Nothing. Not a thing. This is a guy get up here and say this. We don't like to take responsibility. I'm kind of of scared because this is where I fell last week. (laughs) I did fall off the stage last week. You guys missed that. Uh, We don't like to take responsibility for our relationship with Christ. Pastor, it's your responsibility to feed me. It's your responsibility to tell me where to go, how to do it, what to do it. Nobody did that. Yeah, when to do it. Pastor, should I eat now? Yes. Should I eat now? Yes. Should I eat in the morning or at night? Yes. Take responsibility for your relationship with Jesus. Pray. Ask God to speak to you. Ask him to illuminate his word in your heart that it leaves you with no other choice than to go and tell others of the encounter that you've had. It's that simple. We make it complicated. Pastor, I just don't understand the Bible when I read it. Okay, I get that. I can help you with that. I can help you if you genuinely want to learn. If you come to me and say, I need you to feed me, I need you to shepherd me. No, man, no, you don't. You need to listen to what I'm telling you. Read the Bible. Pray. Ask God to speak to you as you read, and he will. So you have to pray, and then you have to do. Move beyond the place where you're satisfied with having a form of godliness, but denying the power that exists in that relationship. We just go about our daily, daily business. I spend my time with the Lord, and don't say a word to anybody. We don't like taking responsibility unless the situation is turning out grand. You win the lotto. I don't, we don't play the lotto in Alabama, I guess, right? It's not in Alabama. Uh, Florida, I don't remember the last time. I think it was like $250 million or something like that that I saw. Um, if you won the lotto, you'd be down there taking responsibility for that money, right? You, you, I hate to tell you this. You've, you've kind of won the lotto. And, and, and it's right here. Everything you need for life and godliness is found right here. Every question you have found right here answers every desire that you could possibly come up with is met right here in God's word and in a relationship with him the passions of your heart the things that make you get up in the morning so excited right there it's all found in a relationship with Jesus how did we get to this spot though here it is we got to where we are as Americans in an American society in the in the country in the state that the country is in as Americans because we simply got what we asked for. We got what we asked for. Ask of me. 
and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the uttermost of the earth as your possessions. We didn't ask for that. We haven't asked for that in a really long time. And maybe it's because it scares us. Maybe because we don't know what it means. We found ourselves in the national crisis that we're in because we asked for and sought after and pursued stuff, success, happiness instead of holiness. That's what we've got. It's that simple. I love something Pastor says. He says, we've come to the place where we are going to either experience revival or God's judgment. I, like most of you, would much rather have revival than the judgment. However, I don't believe it's going to look like we have thought in our minds this whole time. And I don't believe it's going to start in a church building. I've never been a part of modern day revivals. You know, uh, I got saved, I believe, I don't even know the dates, honestly. Um, I think I got saved just after Brownsville had started, 1994-ish. Is that kind of right? Anybody know? Um, uh, I got saved shortly, like the year after that. Um, and uh, so I've never, I've never um, been a part of a, a revival. I didn't go to the Lakeland deal. I didn't watch it on TV. Um, I've never been a part. Uh, that being said, I still know what pastors think typically when they say revival. I know what churches mean when they say um, we're believing God for revival. We all have this image in our minds, kind of like the American dream. We have an image in our mind when I say, you know, we're going to pray for revival. And we have this idea of altars flooded with people and, and altars soaked with tears. And, and uh, the churches are just full and busting at the seams. And there's lines of people waiting to get in and the worship is awesome. We have this idea that we've created in our mind based on things that we've seen or experienced in the past. And I'm here to tell you today, Church of the Shoals, it's not going to happen like that. If we're going to see real revival, true change, transformational change in the earth, I'm not talking about in America, I'm talking about in the earth, it won't look like that. I think that'll be a byproduct I think that churches will be full as a byproduct of what real revival looks like, but it's not going to start in a church. And we've all heard the stories of Tommy Tenney speaking in the pulpit cracking and you know this presence of God coming down and just being this amazing thing. It's not going to look like that. I promise you it's not. not. That will not be how it starts. If it is, then I will be shocked. Here's what I, what I think. Revival takes place, catch this, when an individual realizes that all that they have read in their Bibles is true and that they are invited to participate in the story of grace that is the gospel. If you and I walk out of this building convinced, I mean totally convinced that this is true, that this is the word of God, that everything that this book says is true, and that we can participate in that, revival can happen in a very short time. Revival starts with an individual commitment, not a corporate gathering, not a pastor standing on a platform saying, will you pray for revival? Yeah, go ahead and pray for revival. But revival starts with an individual commitment to God's dream. And what's God's dream? A spotless bride adorned with grace determined to see her groom. That's God's dream. A spotless bride adorned with grace determined to see her groom. My desire is not to leave my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids stuff that they can memorialize and keep to remember me. As much as this Bible, it means so much to me, and I keep it hidden in my closet, and I haven't pulled it out in years. I almost preached out of it this morning, but I was kind of scared that was going to fall apart on me. Um, I don't want to leave my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, my spiritual sons and daughters, stuff that they can memorialize. I don't want to leave a... I, I want, rather, to leave a legacy that they can carry that will never die, never rust, and never fade away. 
Here's how we can do that. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, listen to me, this is important. This is, this is, this is the deal. All authority. Okay, let's pause there for a moment. Jesus is speaking, right? And he says, all authority. Everybody should stop and look at that and go, okay. He's talking about all authority. I want to pay attention here. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gave us all authority to do one thing and one thing only. Make disciples. Make disciples. He didn't give us uh, authority to plant churches. He didn't give us authority to build buildings. He didn't give us uh, authority to hold Bible studies. He gave us authority to make disciples. He gave us all authority to make disciples who understand the ways of God and are committed to live, living them out and reproducing those same attributes in others. Amen. It's not enough for us to make disciples. We have to make disciple makers. We have to make disciple makers. We have to make people who, who are totally in love with Jesus and are confident that they can go and tell others the same love that they've experienced. Teaching those people the ways of God. But it starts with each of us making a choice to follow his lead and then teaching others to do the same. It starts with us. It doesn't start with our pastor. It doesn't start with me as, as, as a pastor. It starts with us individually making that commitment. The scriptural standpoint, I want you guys to catch this, is 2 Timothy 2. It says, you, therefore, okay, my son, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Stay with me. It says, you, therefore, Paul, my son, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ, in the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men. Okay, see me? You got Paul, Timothy, faithful men, who will be able to teach others. That's four, right? Four. Here's your responsibility. Let's just say that Charlie's a Paul. Charlie's responsibility is to find a Timothy to pour his life into who will in turn pour his life into another. Four generations deep. Disciples, making disciples, making disciples, making disciples. Okay? The question is, are you willing to change your focus? I, I, I was trying to like narrow this down um, to like a point. And I feel kind of like I may not have done that accurately, but I've got a, a slide that I want to put up in just a moment to kind of emphasize what I'm talking about here and how we've gotten off from the American dream to what it was really about and, and what the forefathers saw and how we can turn this thing around, okay? The question is, are you willing to change your focus? You have to change your focus. You have to stop thinking about coming to church and, and getting fed and that focus now has to turn into something else. Has to come in, your focus now has to turn from that to, okay, I've been fed for long enough. Uh, the, one of the quotes from this conference was that we, uh, we have more knowledge than we are willing to be, to be obedient to. We have so much knowledge. We sit in church after, week after week after week after week after week and we're not really obeying much of anything that we're hearing. We have more knowledge than we are willing to be obedient to. So we have to change our focus. We have to change our focus. Are you willing to begin to ask for the nations instead of the pot of gold? Are you willing to, to completely say, you know what, God, I really, really would love to see your kingdom come, your will be done. So I, I'm, I'm going to change my mindset. Are you willing to pray and then do? Are you willing to be the person who trades the riches of this world for more of Jesus? Are you willing to really disciple? And I have this thing, like, everything we do as a church in America is, is not bad. Hear me, like, Sunday morning experience is great, right? Um, youth groups, great. Bible study is great. Men's and women's encounters, things like that, all great. It's not making disciples. We would love to say it is. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's not. And you can argue with me that it is, but 
I'm telling you as a pastor, as a youth pastor for 12 years, my youth ministry hasn't been about making disciples solely. It's about making, it's about um, uh, behavior modification. And if we're really honest and truthful with ourselves, that's what a lot of ministries are about. Behavior modification. This person is broken and they're doing broken things. So we need to help them not do broken things now. And it's not like we're not giving them Jesus, but are we teaching them how to go beyond just fixing their broken behavior? Are we teaching them how to say, hey, look, this is the ways of God. This is the character of God. What is God saying to you about that? And how can you obey that? And if you do, the, do that, eventually, behavior will take care of itself. If you focus on giving them Jesus and really instilling them the, the character of God and who God really is, you won't have to focus on their behavior modification anymore. You won't have to change their behavior because you're, you're giving them something that changes their behavior from the inside out. So if you're willing to, if we're willing, we are willing to do those things, then I believe we can see the, the ship made right. I believe that God can accomplish all that he intends to do through us. Okay. Uh, Victoria, do you have that slide back there? <laughs> okay. Can you guys see that? Okay. Let me just break this down for you so you know what you're looking at. Uh, this is um, from the book Jesus Blueprint. It's by a guy named Dave Beering. And I saw this this week, but I also saw it back in March. Uh, I spent some time with Dave, and um, this is something he showed me. Um, if we start with 50 people, okay, and let's just say this room is 50 people big. And each of those 50 people take two people and disciple them for a year with the intent of those two people discipling two more people. At the end of year one, you'll have 150 people that are now disciples. And, and not just disciples, but disciple makers. You with me? Everybody with me so far? 50 times three, right? 150. You got the one plus the two times 50, 150, right? By the year 18 of this happening, was that 19,371,024,450? Say it again, Charlie. Say it again. By like three. It's like three times more. It's a pretty good strategy. Hear me. I'm not asking or challenging you even to get ten people. Who knows two people that aren't and don't understand who God is and the ways of God and the character of God? First of all, if you don't, Please do me a favor. Repent. You need to find a couple people that don't know Jesus. And you don't need to ram him down their throat. It's the love of God that draws men to repentance. It's not, hey, look, let me see if I can ball this up and shove it in your mouth. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about genuinely loving someone, not loving them with the love of the Lord, loving them. Their life is as valuable as yours. This is, this is a great, truthfully, I believe it's the only strategy. Two people. Two people. Find two people you don't know. Find two people that are strangers. Introduce yourself. I was in a room full of strangers on Thursday. By last night, I had a room full of friends. And how do I know that? It's Facebook official now. <laughs> like, Pastor Ben Burroughs. Hey. My point is this. We can fix this. If you guys want this, I can, I can shoot you. I see you guys taking, like, Abby's like, take a picture. <laughs> I, can, I can email the, the slide to you. Um, and furthermore, get the book. If you're serious, get the book. And maybe you have no idea what this looks like. How do I, Pastor Ben, how do I take, this is, if Dave ever listens to this, I'm going to so plug his stuff. Um, maybe you don't know what this looks like. Maybe you don't know how to. I've already got two people in mind. They just don't know it yet. Um. <laughs> Why are you looking away? Just kidding. 
Um, so uh, this is a really great uh, study. It's not a study. It's not a study. It's not a study. And, and you need to hear that. It's not a Bible study. It's not a Bible study. It's not a small group. This is investing in someone's life. You invest in someone's life, guess what? You're going to get a return. Jesus did. Still is. 2,000 years later, he made the greatest investment ever in history. And he's still getting a return. I um, am here to say I don't believe he's getting the return that he really would love to get. And I believe we can do better. And I don't know about you. And John, if you can come on up, man, and hit that keys for me. I I don't know about you, but I I am committed to doing better. I, I am fully committed to doing better um, than I have. And if that's you, I just want you to stand. If you're going to commit, don't stand. Don't stand if you're not serious. If you're seriously willing to commit to doing better at this, at really, really making disciples, not just people who come to know the Lord and get saved. That's easy. Um, they told this story last night. Uh, and it was about this, this young man. This is in the 1800s. This, you can Google it. I did it this morning. Just Google first Hawaiian Christian. First Hawaiian Christian. So they tell this story about this guy, young man, who uh, his parents, he, he was just born, and there were some tribal feuds. And um, his mom, uh, mom or brother? I believe it was his mom. Yeah. His mom put uh, him... Uh, no, it was him. He, he, it was, right, he picked up his younger brother, right. So this young man, young man, like six, seven years old, um, his family, his entire family gets killed. He puts his brother in this like little backpack deal, papoose probably, something, and throws him on his back and is running away from this feudal tribe, this feudal tribe. tribe. And uh, his brother takes an arrow, baby brother takes an arrow and is killed. And the, the other tribe captures this young man at seven years old, and his uncle, they, they give him to his uncle, who is a kahuna, a witch doctor. Um, and his uncle raises him and teaches him how to do human sacrifices and all this stuff. This is like 1844, a long time ago. And um, so, uh, but every, about the time the guy is uh, 13 years old, this ship uh, comes from uh, Connecticut, Maryland area the Americas, and he, um, he sees this ship, and he starts befriending, he swims out to this ship, and he starts befriending uh, the captain of this ship, and he asks his uncle if he can go with the captain to America, and his uncle says no, he says no, says no, says no, finally he says yes, you can go, um, so he gets on the ship, and he um, lands in America, and he's sitting uh, at Yale University, and he's crying. And this man walks by and says, you know, son, why are you crying? In broken English, there's no English. He says, because I've got no one to teach me. So he, this man puts him through Yale. He learns how to speak English and eventually gives his life to the Lord. But through this process, the Lord begins to burden his heart. Now, 1844, this is in the 1800s, right? 200 and something years ago. Through this process, the Lord puts a burden on his heart for his people. So he begins to pray and intercede for the, for the Hawaiian people. And he dies at 26 years old from um, typhoid fever. He dies, right? And at his funeral, right, before he can get back, he dies. And at his funeral, there's these people standing around, and, and they, right, he, and I forgot that part. He'd been translating, <laughs> thank you, been translating the Bible into the Hawaiian language, right? So he, uh, at his funeral, there's this group of young people that were his friends, and they were being discipled together, and they were growing in their relationship with Jesus, and they knew that he'd been praying for the Hawaiian people. And um, the pastor says, who is going to go for Henry? And they kind of look around, they're like, well, you're going to go, and you're going to go, and they all decide they're going to go, this group of young missionaries. Right, men and, men and women married right there on the spot because of the 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 connection to Henry and the call of God in their life to the same region. So they go and um, they evangelize Hawaii 
and, and within 80 years, 80 years of their arrival, this is 1865-ish by the time he dies, um, 80 years later, the Hawaiian, the state of Hawaii is 80% Christianized, okay? Um, my point is this, long view. It's not going to happen overnight. Your discipleship journey, your investment into whoever you decide to invest in, you're not going to see them become followers of Christ in three weeks. You're not going to see them understand the ways of God in, in, in six months. It may take a while. So the commitment is for like a year to just find these couple of people that you'll invest in. I can share with you the material we got. I've never seen anything this good. It's a year long. Um, the books are like 15 bucks. The DVD sets, I think, 50 bucks. Um, all of it's available online. You can even download the app and, and watch them on like an iPhone or whatever. We can talk about that some other time if you guys are interested. But here's what I want to know. If you're serious, seriously committed, and I, and I am, to really doing better at this, to seeing something like this happen, to making disciples, I just want you to stand to your feet right now. There's no shame at all. Listen, you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a pastor to do this. You don't have to be in ministry or have a degree from a Bible college to make disciples. You just have to love Jesus and be willing to share what he did for you with another person and encourage them to do the same. This can work. It can work. I'm just saying this. I know they do it, but it can work at Osa's Garden. It can work at Hometown Market as you're cutting meat. It can work at the salon. It can work at your business as an insurance agent. It can work. This can work. Father, thank you.